uh, Jay, are you, are you are you here? Are you missing this one too? He's just not coming to this one either. Is 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 Jay gone? I can't believe I missed the Jota one. Oh my god! Uh, no, no, right. Jay, Jay, it's okay. We, it's okay, <laughs> Jay. We saved Jota for you for you, this week's episode. You did. You did. Yeah, just for you. Oh my goodness. All right. Well, th- then, uh, hello and welcome to the Vorthos cast. I'm Jay Anelli. I'm Andrew Weisel. And I'm Carrie Thomas. Welcome, everybody. I uh, I am back from far off and exotic Seattle this week. Uh, it was, let me tell you, it was nothing but sunshine and rainbows the whole time I was there. It definitely wasn't cold and wet the whole time. Uh, but it is what it is. So it's okay. It was cold. It was cold as hell on the East Coast. Anyway. This is true. It's like almost May, and I well, I got off uh, the plane when I came back from Seattle, and it was literally freezing outside, and it had been <laughs> like sixty degrees in Seattle. It was oh my the worst. All right. Well, let's get talking about this week. Um, so, Dominaria is now fully revealed. Congratulations, everybody. We did it. We made it through. So today is going to be our last talk about um, preview cards, unless we get requests from uh, individuals, uh, listeners who want us to go into more depth of certain cards or certain flavor. Yeah, we're, we're at the part in Dominaria where if if you have a question about a card's flavor or something about Dominaria's past, just tweet us at the Vorthos cast. And, and we'll add it to the agenda. Yeah. I, I think we, we can start fitting kind of a, a little Q&A section into some episodes now that we don't have cards to talk about. So Dominaria is pretty interesting because as one set, it represents 5% of all legendary creatures in Magic. There are 44 of them in this set, and then there are like 700-something uh, altogether. So it's 5% which compared to like the entire block of Kamigawa is 15% and then legends is 7% of all the all of the legends in the game so between just like five magic sets that's one third of all legendary creatures in the entire game so this is really going to be good for like EDH it's called commander now commander yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you whi- brawl you whippersnappers it is going to be really good for brawl and when Dominario rotates out, Brawl is going to, the field's going to narrow a whole lot. But anyway, we're not here to talk about Brawl. We're here to talk about lore. And last week, oh my god, episode five, of course, of course the one episode I wasn't available for to do a recording is when they bring Joda back into the story. So let me just do my Joda talk real quick. Um, the card flavor, I didn't really like at first, but it's really grown on me. I like that he's... Um, Jeskai aligned in his colors. He's red, white, blue. I would like that a lot because that's kind of what I guessed. Like his his first color was white. Uh, then he learns red in the Gathering Dark, uh, and then at the end he's with his first wife, uh, and she's going to teach him blue. So those are like his first three main colors. But because he can access all the colors, he gets that Fist of the Suns ability, which is really flavorful. I think he looks. People have been calling him uh, what is it? Bishonen. Joda, I don't know exactly how to pronounce <laughs> that's, that. Yeah, that's all Moxie though. The, MJ the Scott. No, <laughs> I think Shivam was calling him that too, uh, or he was saying, you know, the the pretty boy anime character uh, version of Joda, which uh, because he, he is, he he really is. <laughs> but like, I at first I was like, shouldn't he be older? Because I was thinking of the old the the cover art to Gathering Dark, Eternal Ice, and all of them. But I went back and checked Planar Chaos, and it specifically says he looks like he's younger than 30. So hmm. that works out okay. The other thing I really liked is I'm not a big shipper, uh, as, as the kids call it these <laughs> days. But I love that Joda and Joyra had a relationship. And like I love that you could cut the tension between them with a knife like throughout this whole thing. Uh, and that they annoyed the crap out of each other, but like... The moment Joda was in trouble when that uh, kid cast that death spell at him, they were they mentioned Joda moved so fast. It, I'm sorry, Joyra moved so fast it was like she was teleporting to jump in front of him and protect him, which uh, was was very interesting. I wonder how long their their relationship lasted because like it could have been like 50 years and they just grew. <laughs> they got to know each other too well and get on each other's nerves all the time. 
I also really loved that Jota was really on brand with his immediate distrust of Gideon and Liana. <laughs> uh, and the one last thing I want to mention, I I know he only did like the Academy stuff, but if they're bringing Jaya back, they really they really have to have a scene where Jota and Jaya meet again after he's believed her dead for like 20 years. You just can't do you, you can't if, do that if, to us. If they do, I really hope he doesn't recognize her. And she just like takes a mirror and smashes it in his face. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and that's when he knows that it's Jaya. Like, oh my god, Jaya. <laughs> oh, that'd be so perfect. That would be that would be really perfect. Um, I think his very on brand distrust of planeswalkers will be really great too, if the 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 more the slimmer chance of the limb dual theory being correct uh, ends up coming through because it'll turn out he was very much right not to trust Liliana. All right, but with that, let's move into Dominaria flavor gems. Um, so we have There's combed, a lot. We have yeah, we have combed the full set for stuff. So we're gonna try and move through these very quickly, but with capturing all the flavor. So let's start with Traxos, Scourge of Krug. Um, for those of you who don't know, Krug was the capital of the country that uh, Urza basically married into the rule of. Kayla bin Krug was his wife. Uh, went back when he was a mortal, uh, and they were facing off against Mishra, who brought dragon engines to Krug uh, to devastate the plane. These are dragon engines that were buried under the sands in the desert, in the Falaji Desert, and he brings them you know, under a spit, supposedly in an act of peace, uh, but then he basically just lays waste to the whole city after tricking them all into this. So this one hadn't been confirmed as a dragon engine, but the old dragon engines uh, were specifically brass. And if you look closely at Traxos, he's still you can still see the brass, uh, the golden brass color, but he's been oxidized all over because he's been buried in the ground forever is what it looks like. And the other thing I wanted to mention there uh, is we don't know if he's like a Urza made, I'm sorry, Mishra made copies of the dragon engines that were not as fancy. So we don't know if he's an original dragon engine or one of the copies, but he's probably one of the so copies. So as you mentioned, uh, the dragon engines were Frexian machines. Yes, thank you. Um, that Mitra had discovered. In and he Ruins. could control them with his uh, his weak stone. It, uh, yeah, weak stone. Uh, and I also just love this art because like a whole town had been built over top of Traxos. And there's just one dude in the bottom right-hand corner who looks like he's just completely given up on life. <laughs> All right. So the next card we want to talk about is Evra, Halcyon Witness. I like the use of Halcyon here because it's a, got a double meaning. It has both the meaning of like the, the a better yesterday, but it also was the name of um, the Thran capital. Uh, and she is... Basically, what the flavor text implies is that she is an avatar of the Null Moon, uh, which is pretty cool because it's just this giant source of white mana floating around in the sky. This is probably um, the biggest discrepancy between really flashy power level and exciting ability for people who don't know Dominaria's history and super esoteric references to Dominaria's history. <laughs> like, like... This card's really this card is really hard to understand if you don't know like the Thran history, but it's really it's got a really sexy ability that new players can get excited about. And it says some cool things about the metaphysics of avatars, uh, which is something I think I'll talk about when we don't have a bunch of cards to go through. But basically, avatars in both in both Hindu mythology and in magic. They are representations of a greater power, sometimes a literal deity, sometimes a more abstract power, or just a concentration of literal power, like a giant concentration of white mana. Yeah, the, so we, we've talked a bit about the No Moon before. It's Dominaria's second artificial moon made of metal, has a bunch of white mana. Uh, Weatherlight crew tried to use it to shoot a beam of mana at Yawgmoth. Moonbeam power. Mm. Yeah, moonbeam power. So... It's it's cool that that energy gets its own creature. It's weird. 
So the next card we want to talk about is Quende, Pride of Femoreth. And so Quende's flavor text references that he's from a, a lost country. Uh, he has a uh, the student of a forgotten general, and uh, he has blades that no mortal smith or no smith could reforge. And so a lot of people have asked, well, what are those reference? So the lost country is Zalfir, the general, and we only learned this officially from the um, from the little Twitter bios they've been posting. We learned the general is Majeda the Lion, which is a character from Prophecy. Uh, he was actually the head of one of my casual decks as a kid for a long time. Uh, and the daggers are the the daggers of Talrum uh, Minotaurs. So if you look up the Talrum, that's T-A-L-R-U-U-M, uh, and look at the Minotaurs, you can see those same blades in their hands. And the reason no one else can forge them is because all of those Minotaurs uh, basically got phased out of existence with the rest of Zelfir. The other flavor note is he is also wearing a sun clasp, which is a magic card. So there are a lot of references on Quende. And I think the really cute one is that... Um... So he's a descendant of Megiddo the lion, lion, and he is the pride ephemeris, like a pride of lions. <laughs> like both those words independently work on those card names, but it's it's really clever. So the next one we want to talk about is Marwin the nurturer. And Carrie, I'm going to throw that one to you because you've got that one and another to talk about. Yeah, Marwin is another character profiled in the Twitter the little bio images that they have put out and specifically Marwin and Halar are two new characters that have a little bit of connected history. Um, Marwin is described as a midwife and she famously negotiated a treaty with an angry group of elves from another elfheim while at the bedside of a mother going through a difficult birth and in the end that baby ends up being Halar the fire fletcher pyromancer archer? Something like that, yeah. It's it's a fancy combo. Halar notably uses um, genderless elvish pronouns that reflects their ambiguous identity. We haven't gotten that much of this in Magic. We have had the Aetherborn on Kaladesh. We have had Ashiok, who is without any type of pronouns on Theros. But for the most part, that is the extent of known or recognized characters with those um, aspects to them. And... Yeah, it's nice to see this handled perfectly well from the start and that they're continuing in the trend with Kaladesh in introducing these types of characters into magic. Yeah, I, I always thought, like, when, when they introduced Ashiok and they're like, Ashiok is mysterious, nobody knows Ashiok's gender or stuff. I was like, well, that's kind of a cop-out. But, like, Halar, Halar was very clearly, this person is non-binary, they use they-them pronouns period like straight up said it those are the two trip spaces they generally end up to play in is the bemo space which is we haven't defined this character's gender and so therefore we can use it either way and they're mm -hmm. robots so it doesn't really matter that much or it's unknowable horror kind of the emrical route these characters don't have ascribed genders but maybe we just slap a pronoun on them anyways so yes, this is a clear departing from those kind of ways, and it's refreshing. So the uh, the next card, you know what? I, I do want to mention, I, I like it a lot too, because, you know, they're very, they have been very oblique in the past if they've referenced uh, people with non-binary or other identities, and it's it's nice to see them just use it up front. Yeah. Rather than pull going the uh, J.K. Rowling route of announcing five years later that Dumbledore is gay, <laughs> yeah. or ten years later, or whatever it is, you know, it's it's represented up front. Uh, and I know, like, there's been a lot of debate on this, but every single person I know that identifies as non-binary has been very happy about this. Yes. Uh, so I'm I'm very happy. Uh, so the next card we want to talk about is Clifftop Retreat. Uh, we talked about this a bunch before in both episodes talking about Sarah, so I won't go into it too much here, but uh, this represents Epitir, which is the, um, it is a site in the Carpluzan Mountains on uh, Tercier, on the island of New Argive, 
uh, that was once ruled by the Shiltun Empire, but this uh, song mage called Thabit, I think his name was, summoned like so many Sarah Angels, they blocked out the sun. And uh, it's been a holy site since they ran off the Shiltun Empire there ever since. And it's just, it's a very cool looking artwork. I've I've ordered it. I'm not sure I have a deck that actually has to go into, but the art is so gorgeous I had to have it. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. That's where the Crystal Gems live. Oh, God. We are the Crystal Gems. All right. Actually, no, they live in Maryland. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> or Delaware, one or the other. Um, it's the same state. It basically is. For those of you listening, <laughs> I'm from Maryland. <laughs> so the next card we want to talk about is Hinterland Harbor, which is really cool because it shows a town growing on top of a crashed planar portal ship, uh, which is much, much bigger than I think anyone really imagined that they were. <laughs> but it makes sense for the size of the Frexians coming through in some cases. Uh, and it's interesting because I was wondering how none of these people were infected by Frexian oil. Uh, and the answer we got on Twitter was, I'm sure it has something to do with the legacy weapon. So I think we can imagine that most, if not all, the Phyrexian, the glistening oil on Dominaria was neutralized during uh, during that. The planar portals as a whole are an iconic design of that era of magic. And I'm just glad to see their shape represented here in some it's form or another. Cool. It it was it was super cool when we saw them in um, Teferi's protection last year, mm-hmm. in, in that art because like like as he's phasing out Zalfir, and you, you can see all the portal ships. Some have just arrived. Some are already forming the portals. Um, so any anytime we see them, it is pretty awesome. But you also discovered the reference in Gathering Forces within Koth's sword, and I don't think we've ever brought that up before. Would remind us what that was. That was Koth's sword. Um. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, if if you're if you're listening to this, pull up Gathering Forces. Look at the part one where uh, Koth and Elspeth are doing dueling. Uh, yeah the the blade comes out of um so so the handle of the sword has has like the the circle and then the two portal arms coming up and then the blade comes out of the middle of them. Um, which makes sense because they're fighting in Urborg, where <laughs> the main Frexian forces existed. But I thought that was a cool detail. Also kind of ironic because he hates the Frexian. <laughs> <laughs> so the next uh, enemy check land I wanted to talk about real quick was just Isolated Chapel, which takes place in Circe, uh, which is, just to remind everyone, it's where Sarah died. It's where the Sarah Cathedral is. So I think this is kind of a reference to to that um although the Sarah cathedral we saw was at like a, on like a mountaintop uh or in the ocean i can't remember really which there's like a land bridge getting up to it uh from the original art but this is a reference it's like a Sarah cathedral and the radius around it is being protected from the cabal's corruption it was just a neat little flavor bit no banding though no banding <laughs> so this is i think this might be the only set where we talk about a bunch of the basic lands because they're so good <laughs> yep um so the first one i want to talk about is uh we'll talk about some more later but the first one i want to talk about is the plains by dimitar or I'm, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name but um it's actually the first piece of dominaria art we ever saw uh it was the one that was revealed at like an investors meeting last summer and uh this is the first time we've seen it in in full and it just looks awesome. It fits right in with the Urza Saga Sarah's Realm planes. Uh, and I plan on just including it with all of those in any deck that I build. <laughs> it just looks gorgeous. It's like a, a modern day update of Sarah's Realm. And it's a very cool way to design that, honestly. I don't really have to anything clarify, else to clarify, it's not set on Sarah's Realm. It's in the skies over Banalia, where the refugees from Sarah's Realm have kind of rebuilt using the same floating architectural styles correct and fused it with the new banalian uh stained glass style yeah so the next one uh we want to talk about is kazarov sengir pureblood which just real quick this artwork looks like it could be from like homelands or something but it's really well done i, I mean a lot of a lot of the homelands art was 
it, some of it was hit or miss, but I like that the style and like the color palette, like the, the more muted color palette really would make it blend in with some of the older magic art for the old Sengir vampires or um, Baron's, even the art for Baron Sengir himself. Uh, the Sengir are vampires from a unknown plane um, that were their pro uh, progenitor was uh, Baron Sengir himself. Uh, he gets turned into a vampire by his uh, father, who's this corrupt baron, and he ends up becoming corrupt as well. Uh, and he winds up on uh, being stranded on Ulgratha at some point. Um, but his lineage is all over Dominaria as well. And uh, I think we've talked about them a lot before, but just real quick, the further you get from Baron Sengir, the more bestial you are as a vampire. Uh, and that's further down the bloodline, not physically. Correct. So. Yes, thank you. I, I think I make that mistake every time. I don't clarify that. So it's Well, well I'm the word guy, so I, I can Fair clarify enough. your language. <laughs> so uh, Kazaroth as well looks very... He actually looks pretty bestial. He's got the pointy ears and everything. So I assume the reason Arvad doesn't is because of the influence of the Sarah's Realm Power Stone on the Weatherlight. And that's why he still looks mostly human. Uh, rather than the more bat-like features. He says in general in that story that the power of the church has helped a lot, um, but then specifically that the Power Stone um, almost seemingly cures him at some points. The next one we want to talk about is Primordial Worm, which, besides being a, a true worm, as we've I think we've talked about in this podcast before, about how worms got confused with worms like the... I'm, I'm i'm not sure i've gone on my worm worm rant but it's on the list of things for me to rant about <laughs> in the future i will not do it here but the real reason we're bringing it up is for a certain name mentioned in the flavor text if you check out we'll quote tweet it and reply to the cast for this week but jeff gomez has a mini thread on the origin of the carthalians um, within magic and within the Armada comics in which they first appeared. But this is the latest installment of that family, um, Jensen Carthalian. The Carthalians are a legacy that has gone through um, a lot of the pre-revisionist work of magic, kind of ending for the most part with um, a planeswalker who was present in the planeswalkers war and then dropped off the face forever. of the planet for the most part. Um, well, that's that's the Planeswalkers War. Exactly. People just drop out of the story with no resolution. And he was also, he was lovers with uh, Christina of the Wood, right? Yes. And the end result here is that there is another Carthalian as part of that family, alive today on Dominaria, but also that, as Ethan Fleischer revealed on Twitter, there wasn't enough space to give him a card, seemingly as a result of too many J names within the set, which I know you guys have been big advocates of. And it's entertaining because at no point in the process was there ever a, we couldn't give, or we might not give this character a J name if it meant giving them a card. It was either we got a J Carthalian or nothing at all. And the they J Carthalian. <laughs> yeah. I think there's one non J name, but yes. So here I, I pulled up the list here. They all are real quick. There's Jason, Jaul, Adam, Jared, and then now Jensen. Uh, and then there's the original, which is Carth uh, the Lion, who is given that name by Dakin Blackblade. Uh, all right, let's move on to the next one. That was just a very cool flavor, and I hope we see Jensen next time we come back to Dominaria. Yeah, let's move on to Gideon's Reproach, where he gets to <laughs> punch people. Uh, we lived in the first story so that good. he lost his sorrel. Um and we know he's going to get the Black Blade later. But for now, he's he's got just like a regular Benalish sword. Um, or I guess Benalish. Don't yell at me, Kelly. Um, <laughs> but but the card has him punching. And more, not, more importantly, it shows his indestructible aura over his fist. <laughs> so we've, we've never really seen Gideon use that as an offensive weapon before. But he's literally making his fist indestructible to just deck um, a cabal cleric in the face. It's fantastic. <laughs> uh, the, 
it's really good. I, I like it a lot. It's just funny that Gideon's punching somebody. Uh, and I'm all for Gideon punching more people. So the uh, the next card we want to talk about is On Sarah's Wings, which is a uh, reference to Sarah's Embrace all the way down yeah. to the flavor text. Yeah, uh, both both cards have a flavor text quote from Canto 524 of the Song of All, which is this big kind of religious song to Sarah. Um, but the older card references this moment uh, with this character Brindry, who I think is just a flavor text character. Um, That's right. Who, who, who was given wings by Sarah and uh, kind of turned them into uh, a battle angel warrior. And so this card references uh, that same story, except instead of getting regular old feathery angel wings, it gets uh, these magnificent stained glass angel wings that look awesome. And um, uh, what's the what's the Orzhov card that has the stained glass wings also? Gift of Orzhov, yeah. Um, I'm sorry, but on Sarah's wings, wings are way better. That's uh, that's my verdict in the stained glass wings fight. Deep Freeze is another flavorfully designed card that I love. So way back when, in sets like Ice Age there were top-down cards that are just like 10 lines of text because they have so many weird, intricate, trinket text exceptions to their rules. <laughs> um, but like like Winter's Chill is one um, that I love because there's like so many additional things on it and it's just like way over-designed. Uh, Deep Freeze is a top-down freeze your creature into a wall of ice <laughs> um but when you read the, the the wording on the card is really clunky and it does lots of weird things but they're all to play to the strength of the flavor of freezing something in a wall of ice like it, it's it's a card that's easy to grok but hard to explain mechanically which is kind of an old tenant of Vorthos magic design from way back when. They don't design cards like this very often anymore. Um, so it, it's fun for me to see that in this set. Dominaria was a good time for it. The next one is Syncopate. Is that how you pronounce it? Syncopate? Yes, Syncopate. Uh, which has, as long as we're talking about the flavor of what cards do, um, most counter spells are kind of dismissively clever they're kind of the Urtai brand. Um, <laughs> Urtai was a huge jerk. So we've, we've seen a lot of counterspells with that kind of flavor. This one has Teferi, head-bowed, kind of downtrodden, kind of flicking behind him, wiping the spell away. This is... We've never seen a counterspell with this kind of flavor where it's not... I'm so much more clever than you. I'm going to stop your spell. It's leave me alone. I don't want to be bothered. And just like flicks the spell away. And it's effortless for Teferi because he's powerful. But it, but it's the, the tone and the loneliness and the desire to be isolated in that art is so refreshing for a counter spell. I the love it The art direction so for it is really great. And I think Mark Winters mentioned that he asked for it to be... It was either he, him, or Kelly... Uh, asked for it to be illustrated like a corrupted mp3 would look like a hmm. corrupted music file would look yeah uh, which and they pulled I, off very well it, it looks that way and uh, it works for that feat like the art on this is just so good yeah and the only reason he is so visibly upset within the artwork is that he's been told that he cannot eat the crystal <laughs> We'll get to the crystal in a second. <laughs> All right, Feral Abomination. Thralls, outside of Sarpedia, uh, in service of the Cabal. Extinction This can't go event. wrong. We talked before about how the um, the Thalids getting off Sarpedia could be bad. Thralls getting off Thralls Sarpedia. are way worse. Uh, this one is visually modeled off Thrall Champion, so that's cool. So the next card we want to talk about is Fight Fire with... I'm sorry, Fight with Fire. Uh, which is awesome because if you kick it, uh, Jaya gets to fight everything, which is funny because in Sizzle, her flavor text says, 
Uh, of course I fight with fire. I fight everything with fire. I'm, <laughs> which is, it's That's just a funny. paraphrase, but, but yeah. it's a reference to probably Jaya's most famous flavor text. So the actual flavor text of Sizzle is, of course you should fight fire with fire. You should fight everything with fire, <laughs> which is great. And I can't wait to say that during a game after kicking it. Uh, yeah, another kind of world-building detail. Uh, Skirk, Skirk Prospector and Avon Sentry both kind of reference this. Uh, Skirk Prospector talks about how the goblins have been mining since the Otaria blocks, um, which was Odyssey and Onslaught, without any idea what happened above. And Avon Sentry talks about how the Avon fled Otaria and were welcomed into Banalia. So it sounds like Otaria has been really devastated and there probably isn't much left there, which is kind of frightening because that's all Corona stuff and that's dangerous. Other really cool world building is Varric's Bladewing. She is kind of the the matriarch of the Bladewing clan. They're a family of dragons. Uh, Rorix was a pit fighter in Onslaught who then died and then became a zombie. We don't know why, but the family is from Shiv and still around and part of the United Shiv Nation. Varix and Carrix have little wedding bands on their horns, which is cool, part of their kind of marriage. <laughs> and their child is Terex, who we saw in Feature Sight as uh, one of those kind of feature-shifted legendary creatures. They're, they're, the, they're the violent dragon family who thinks Daragaz is doing a crappy job and thinks they should rule Shiv which is pretty arrogant, which is fitting for Shivan Dragons. Uh, the Nature Spiral art shows regrowth in a strip mine, which is from the card Strip Mine, uh, during the Antiquities War on Terrasier. So it's cool to see that Dominari is bouncing back. It's kind of selling that theme. Uh, Sparring Construct refers to an attack by the Talus, who are these technologically advanced pirates and merchants. They're the ones with guns and steamships and stuff. So, of course, you need warrior soldier robots to help defend against them, <laughs> which I thought was cute. <laughs> I think the big, one of the biggest flavor wins for me is the cycle of basic lands by Mark Poole. Uh, Mark had illustrated a cycle of lands in fallen empires uh, with the uh, ruins of Trocair, Svelunai Temple, Evan Stronghold, Dwarven Ruins, and Havenwood Battleground. Each of the basic lands in his cycle on Dominaria references those original card arts. So the the planes has an, all of them have either ha, have archways in them, referencing doorways on from Trocaer, from uh, the temples and everything. Uh, the forest one you can see the holes in the trees that are also in the Havenwood trees. So um, as the the only basic lands that represent Sarpedia, since Fallen Empires didn't have basics. Uh, I thought that was a really cool reference and throwback and a great opportunity to, to get those into the set. But if you were wondering what the hell the Svelunite Temple even means, uh, Svelun is a Valdalian goddess of the moon. Um, her worshippers are the Order of the Pearl Trident. Uh, we have a card in this set, Sentinel of the Pearl Trident, which shows... Um, you can see the merfolk in the front, but then kind of behind it, you can see this big circle with with a couple orbs next to it, uh, or I guess points of light. That's called a moon dog or a parasoline, which is also a magic card, but on Innistrad, that's something different. So when the moon's especially bright, its light can refract through ice crystals to give it this halo effect, but also, also these two bright points to the side of it. Uh, this is the symbol of the goddess Phelan, so it's cool to see that represented in the art. And then... Um, Kelly Diggs, during the Loading Ready Run pre-pre-release, uh, mentioned that there, but also mentioned that Slin Voda isn't just this huge leviathan. All that stuff on Slin Voda's back is a merfolk city, which, which is really is... cool. See, I, when I first read it, I didn't realize that um, it wasn't actually Ula's tribal because it adds merfolk to the, the list of the sea monsters of things that are right. accepted. And that makes housing. sense now. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense now. All right, listeners, so if there is something we have not talked about, a specific card you want us to, to touch on or something like that, just tweet it at us and we'll add it to a future agenda. Uh, but with that, that about covers all our Dominaria flavor gems. So let's move on to uh, Return to Dominaria, Episode 6. We are now halfway through the story. 
uh, and we have gotten a couple pretty good fla- uh, character building episodes, and this is really one of them. Like, if you don't know, didn't know who Teferi was before this episode, you do now. <laughs> so, so, he and his daughter uh, Nyambi are both about fifty years old physically. Uh, Teferi has been uh, aging very slowly, um, and he ha- he comments on it uh, during the story. Uh, he also has kept his great sense of humor from all the way back when he was a prankster. Uh, and he, Remember, <laughs> he just messes is, with people. This is so the much. same character who made a fart device and put Beebles on his shoes so he could jump far. All right. So Teferi is out in the Tivan Desert, which is that southeastern section of Jamura that we knew nothing about, essentially. Uh, in the because map. there's I'll, nothing there. It's there's bas- literally Basically, there. the whole part of that continent is just that big desert. So apparently Urza had created a mysterious temple of doom there to protect some kind of artifact. And there are cute, a couple cute nods to, to Fairy's age uh, during this section where people keep calling it ancient. And he's like, yeah, it's ancient, but it's not older than me. <laughs> um and inside he has like uh, mechanical spiders, uh, like assembly workers that repair each other and attack uh, Teferi whenever he comes in. Uh, and basically... Those those are references to old Urza technology from the old books. So Right. Um, the cute, mechanical cute sp- Easter eggs that you don't need to know, but it's cool that they're there. And basically Urza is a jerk. Uh, <laughs> Teferi explains to his daughter uh, that... Urza was not really his friend because Urza didn't have friends like normal people have friends. He had uh, test subjects, experimental subjects, and then there were people power enough, powerful enough that he considered them to be sentient beings, essentially, which was a pretty great way of describing Urza back then. Yeah, we, we talked in an earlier podcast about how he was in complete denial of Karn's personhood. This is a reference to things like that. Uh, Urza was not a nice guy. Uh, and whatever is in this Temple of Doom, uh, he deliberately was keeping it from Teferi. Although there's a cute line where Teferi is like, uh, he was protecting it from the world or whatever. And his his daughter is like, you don't really believe that, do you? And he said, no, but it's what people want to hear. <laughs> Which is uh, great for the history theme of the set. So the weather light arrives after uh, Teferi and Nyambi uh, fail at trying to solve the puzzle yet again. Um, and yeah, we, everyone... We, we should mention that Teferi believes that this artifact that he can find in this temple that Ursa supposedly left for him can help him return fix problems with time, which he thinks can help him return Zalfir to Dominaria, which is something he has not been able to do. So... For Teferi, this is kind of his big humbling shame is, you know, when he sent Zalfir out of the Time Dream to protect it from the Frexians and from Urza's plan to use Zalfir as a frontline bait against Frexia, because like we said, Urza's a jerk. As a pre-mending planeswalker, he can make that decision because he figures he can just reverse it at any time. What happened during the mending is that Jessica closed the rift before he phased Zalfir back in. Then he lost his Planeswalker Spark, phasing Shiv back in and closing that time rift, and then didn't have the power to bring Zalfir back. So he's now had to live as a mortal, knowing that he made that decision centuries ago that uh, has effectively killed his home, and he's not sure how to fix that. And uh, so he's it's his big regret and has taught him a lot about humility and his own arrogance and put him on a path, as as he states, um, you can't fix the past, but you can try and balance out your sheet. Yeah, I like that line a lot. Because, like, like I, I did not like Teferi before this story and before any of the flavor text we've seen from him so far. I thought he was overly arrogant, not as big a jerk of Ursa, but still a big jerk, too much of a unilateral decision maker and that's all true but teferi has actually realized those things about himself 
which is a lot of maturity on his part and is really reflected in this seemingly unrelenting quest to fix Alfir. He talks about how, like, he's been trying to get at the artifact in this temple for yeah years and years and years and has to do it with the help of his daughter, who he also has to protect, and it's very stressful for him. And he believes this artifact will lead him to others that will help him return Zelfir as well, which is why yeah. we're talking about a potential second legacy. Because apparently, because Urza, Urza hid a, a whole bunch of yeah. Apparently, Urza hid a whole bunch of these all over the plane, and potentially all it's over multiple planes. We might see more of that later. We don't know how important this is yet. So basically, <laughs> Joira comes in and they explain the problem, and she says, "Well." Did you think Urza was going to play fair? <laughs> There's this like, oh crap moment where they realize that if Urza was really trying to keep this from Teferi, he, uh, he, he, he wouldn't make a puzzle that Teferi could actually solve. Um, but he knew that Teferi trying to solve it would keep him from just kind of brute forcing his way into it. There's also this great moment with Gideon where Gideon realizes uh, his arrogance maybe isn't so bad because at least he didn't phase out a whole country. Yeah, uh, you this, know, this um, is the, you know, Gideon sad because he got four of his friends killed, and Teferi's like, "Oh, you think that's bad? Hold my wizard beer." So uh, they go back into the Temple of Doom, and uh, now that they have a necromancer, Liliana is go basically walks right in and is like, "Yep, there are some ghosts. There are some more ghosts." Uh, and, uh, Teferi goes, no, I would have sensed them, you know, with my phasing magic. And Joyra goes, no, they're ghosts. They're not phased out. They're just ghosts, which is, um, a cool bit of metaphysics. Cause it means, I think we've internally at least speculated in the past about Kaya's magic, um, and whether it was a kind of phasing, but I've never speculated about that, but it's I not make that clear, but it's not, I was um, never on that train. <laughs> uh well it's very similar to like the shadow magic of the people who are caught in the overlay that like was a very gothic. specific metaphysical thing i was never on that train either she, she can turn into a ghost that's kaya's thing that's different but now okay. it's officially confirmed yeah well the, the the metaphysics are very clearly different like we've never seen we don't know if like um they could interact with each other and it's it's not the same thing it's just two very different things uh, the other thing we learned is that ghosts lose cohesion over time, which would explain why some look more realistic and some look just like blobs. But anyway, they working together through the power of friendship, they managed to uh, defeat Urza's tricky trap. Uh, and uh, Teferi claims this dark, what's described as a dark crystal orb nestled in a cage of silver vines, which is oddly specific. Right? I, I feel like that's yeah. oddly specific. Uh, so I went back and looked at like the old legacy weapon stuff and anything else that might be relevant. And there are three candidates that kind of look like it, but I feel like it's really something new. Um, the first is a heartstone, which is a power stone that has been uh, implanted into a individual. Uh, the card heartstone kind of looks like that description. Uh, and we'll talk more about Hearthstones in a second. Uh, the other is the Juju Bubble, which kind of looks like it. Um, and the Power Matrix, which kind of looks like it. But I'm not sure how any of them would help. But then again, I'm not sure how any of them came together to form the Legacy Weapon. So. It's probably an Archelian power source that needs to be returned to them before they destroy the Earth. So the Men <laughs> in Black have to save everyone, right? <laughs> That's what the story is. It reminded me of the orb we get to see on Opt. Oh, um, yeah. As the well, alternative we'll talk about to that. the crystal that he's holding. But yes. We'll talk about that in just one second. Um, so the last line I wanted to mention from Nyambi is Nyambi realizes her father's going to go with these people. He wants to go on adventures. She's heard him talk about Joyra all his life. Uh, so she says goodbye and she's it's, it's very sweet. Um, and she has this whole like little goodbye monologue to him and ends with, you know, if you return Zalfir is basically if you return Zalfir to the world, 
you know, come get us and come give us a tour of, uh, you know, our ancestral home. Um, but it, warn us if they want to kill you, please. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, if you got phased out for like 400 years, you might be a little bit mad with the guy who did it, especially since their intention was to fight. Yeah, we, we talked a little bit about the art on um, the Menning of Dominaria, the saga, uh, last week and why Jessica's not there. Um, and T- Teferi is there, but he gets he's has a little figure at the bottom, whereas uh, Karn, Windgrace, and Freilis have big busts that go up the tree. So they're a little set, they're a little down on Teferi's help there. Also, he's almost like an Atlas figure holding up the tree in the world, or like holding up the tree from the world. Uh, but he's clearly like in a less like, important. Tor- yeah, less important and a tortured role while everyone else is in, like, this noble bust. Uh, and so that brings us to the very last stinger of this episode, which is we finally learn what was in Joyra's spark. I'm sorry, Joyra's... I, I gave it away. What was in Joyra's locket, which is uh, Teferi's, uh, Teferi's spark, uh, which we knew we knew he was going to get back. Um, because he's a planeswalker card like that much was clear the uh, card opt made it clear that he got a crystal with his spark in it from joyra so now we know that this was that locket like remember we speculated like what that thing in joyra's hand is on the key art yeah yeah so that's what it was it was the the locket holding teferi's spark which she Forged the power stone in the mana rig, she says. Um, but the real question is how she got his spark in there. Um, and just some, let's rewind all the way back to the Thran time for some people who aren't understanding how there's a spark in a power stone at all. So Glacian, we talked about this before, Glacian, the artificer from Thran, the Thran times, he had uh, an unignited spark. And when he was stabbed with uh, a power stone shard, it kind of grew inside him uh, and, and absorbed his soul and absorbed pieces of his soul, his essence. Right. And Yogmoth experimented on him and ended in, and ended up putting in the um, the, the the combined the, the might stone and meek st- uh, weak stone, uh, which absorbed his essence and his soul and his spark. Uh that then Urza and Mishra would find during the Brothers' War or the Antiquities' War, as the card is called. Uh, and Urza's spark would ignite, and those maybe that, those powers maybe yeah those power stones would become his eyes. And the maybe there, because uh, Andrew has a good point, is one of the prevailing fan theories is that Urza never had a spark, and it was only with both halves of the power stone. Uh, it fused with him and made him an artificial planeswalker, just like it would Karn an artificial planeswalker. Because the reason Karn is a planeswalker is because Urza's power stone eyes were fused into him uh, when they uh, ignited their last ditch effort to destroy Yagmoth at the end of Apocalypse. So we know that power stones through that whole thing from Glacian to Urza to Karn can hold sparks. Um, we know that this there is are the things... reason we mentioned Heartstones earlier. Also, right? Was, uh, they were used by Yogmoth. They he implanted Heartstones into his little Frexian newts. So as they grew, they grew with the Heartstone, and the Heartstone would sap their soul, and then Yogmoth would have a Power Stone with the newt's souls, and so he could control them that way. Um, so it's it's been very well defined metaphysically in magic's history that power stones can absorb souls and sparks so the the question of how is there a spark inside a crystal is very easy to explain now the the real question uh and i'll let carrie answer this one the real question is how he gets it from inside the crystal back into his soul i mean i'll give you the boring route of magical absorption he, 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 you're not gonna give us. He gonna eat it? No, I don't think he's. I don't think he's actually gonna eat it. He gonna um, crunch it? I don't know. There, there haven't been too many spark transfers 
um, in all of Magic, but specifically there haven't been too many spark transfers post-mending. We have the notable example of Karn um, and Venser, but beyond that, we don't really see the scenes, and Karn and Venser was also an exemplary case because it was the novel also... literally says he teleports his heart, not his spark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was intended to be giving Karn a clean heart, and along with that, Molier's immunity, but it also just dragged along with that his spark because plot that's that's the short answer of it don't don't think too much about anything having to do with mirrodin just don't don't do and it yourself. yeah that's the only notable example we've seen post mending we've seen people try to harvest them um we saw malfagor try to harvest siva grunt's spark or um track it it wasn't exactly comics, clear yeah. but yeah it's not something that comes up too too often except it just happened to come up last block too with the immortal sun which is interesting because i wonder if like all now... is gonna eat the immortal sun <laughs> <laughs> maybe but i wonder if um now he could just swallow it whole like a tic tac i wonder if they're deliberately getting us used to that for something else that's going to be happening you know, there's one theory that Bolas wants to trap all the planeswalkers to steal all their sparks at once, but I don't know about that. I'm not I'm not gonna actively speculate on that right now. Uh but it is interesting that we have two that after years of spark transferal not really being a thing, uh we have two blocks back to back that it's a major theme. Sparks um, and rocks. Sparks modern, and rocks. Modern magic motifs. All right. Well, we are approaching the hour mark, so uh, let's go ahead and go with final thoughts. Andrew? I didn't really have any final thoughts prepared. I'm sorry. This is embarrassing. Yeah, you're, you've brought shame uh, upon your uh, Okay, here's one. Uh, do you guys know there's a Hammerid in Dominaria? How cool is that? It is very cool. I did not know that. I should go and get <laughs> my son to do an art review of it. <laughs> it's very exciting because the so we're recording this podcast before the pre-release y'all are gonna listen to it after the pre-release so hopefully between us recording and you listening i get to open and play with some homerids all fingers right, crossed pincers crossed <laughs> they aren't too good with the self-mill stuff right no the card is like dreadful in this limited <laughs> <laughs> All right, and Carrie, final thoughts. We have had three blocks post-mending that have not had the involvement of a pre-mending planeswalker in wow, the mainline that... plot. Yeah, we've gone a full decade, and we've only notably had Lorwyn, Return to Ravnica, and Theros, I believe, are the three. And even then, Return to Ravnica has Azor. It's all about Azor. In the background, yeah. Yeah. And, and then, we'll see if Heliod's a pre-mending planeswalker. That's exactly. another so, conversation for another time. It would get cut down even further if there's any kind of revelation. <laughs> just in the be Lorwyn. That was that was actually Carrie's theory. So if you don't understand what Andrew meant just there, uh, Carrie had wrote a piece called "Breaking Down the Order of Heliod." No, don't the spoil it. That's a good thing for another episode. Let people wonder. Okay. Sure. <laughs> We'll let Carrie talk about it uh, in a future episode. That's all. All right. right. Well, thank you for listening. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Uh, thank you all. Uh, we really appreciate you listening to our nonsense. Um, I know I do, and I'm glad to be back. <laughs>